This is going to be sort of a bit of a drosh on Parashat Miketz and a little bit into next week's Parashat um, Vayigash. Thinking about big picture reconciliation, right? The story of Joseph and his brothers contains more messianic implications than any other narrative in the Tanakh. It's a few years ago, we did a Wednesday night study called Shadows of the Messiah. Really brought a lot of this out. So many different ways to look at this. Very impressive commentary. Much to draw from, many important insights, but you can see a lot of greater themes of reconciliation between Judaism and Christianity, not just within one's own family. It's all right there. Much to draw from that can help us get along with our physical families, of course, but also our spiritual families. So a quick recap is in order. Okay, I've got some time here. If you want to follow along, it, this, I want to kind of remind everyone of all the trouble that Jacob or that Joseph has gone through up until this point. It really begins in Genesis 37. I'm not going to read chapters Genesis 37 all the way here. It's just going to hit some highlights and um, of a couple chapters on our way up because I'd like to emphasize the trials that this poor guy has gone through. Genesis 37, verse 1 says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. There are the genealogies of Jacob. When Joseph was 17 years old, so he's 17 years old, he was shepherding the flocks with his brothers and the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their fathers. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his other sons because he was the son of his old age. So right from the beginning here, Joseph's the favorite. He's one of the youngest and he's tattletaling on his brothers. Not a good way to be in with the brothers, right? And it only gets worse a little later on as he receives revelation from the Lord in the form of a dream. All his brothers are bowing down to him. He decides to share that with his brothers too. Further, uh, just creating that tension with him and his brothers. And so a little later on in this chapter, they, they uh, get together and they decide that they are going to take advantage of the situation where they're out in the middle of nowhere with Joseph and um, throw him in a pit. What are they going to do? Are they going to uh, strike him down and smite him? I mean, what's going on here? And then um, while they're trying to figure out what exactly they're going to do, uh, some people traveling by on their way to Egypt and um, happen upon them, and they get this idea they're going to sell them to Egypt. Um, and chapter, we're still in chapter 37. Uh, 30, 26, verse 26, there is at least a uh, measure of uh, redemption here with Judah when Judah says to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Um, come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. We, let's not lay our hand on him since he's our brother, our own flesh. Thankfully, his brothers listened to him. 
Then uh, when some men, Midianite merchants, passed by, they dragged Joseph up out of the pit and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver and they brought Joseph to Egypt. So this has been a very uh, traumatic experience, of course, for Joseph, but that's just getting started with traumatic experiences for poor Joseph. Now, in uh, chapter 38, a little side kind of thing with Joseph and Tamar, but the narrative picks up in chapter 39. Things seem to be going very well for Joseph. Chapter 39 tells how Joseph flourished in Egypt, how Potiphar made him in charge over all his house. Things are going very good. He's got an important, powerful position. But then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him here in chapter 39. And when he refuses her advances, um, she lies and has him thrown in prison. Um, 39 verse 16 says, Then she, this is Potiphar's wife, uh, kept the garment uh, that she had taken from Joseph when he ran after refusing her advances. She kept the garment with her until her, his master came home. She spoke with the words to him saying, The Hebrew slave you brought us approached me to fool with me. When I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment with me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife spoken to him, saying, such are the things your slave did to me, his anger burned. Then Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So there he was in the prison. Again, from the pit, a little bit of success, and then back to prison. When you do the math, he spent about 12 years in prison in all. It's a lot of time. Prison's not a happy place. By show of hands, has anyone here been to prison? Maybe a little county time? Amen, brother. You ask those who've had the opportunity to experience that, you get a lot of common factors. The food is terrible. There's a lot of people that you're uh, enclosed with. It's a dangerous place. But mentally, is uh, your life is being passed by as you're sitting there doing nothing. Children are growing up. Parents are getting older. Your friends are living life. And if you had a sentence of a few months, I suppose it's easy to get through. But when you talk about years and years of being in prison for something that you actually did not do, maintaining faith has to be incredibly difficult under those circumstances. Not only to be betrayed by his brothers, thinking he's going to die, being sold to Egypt, and now he's in prison for a long time. Yet, he flourishes there. Um, chapter 39, verse 21, says, But Adonai was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the eyes of the commander of the prison. Which is a puzzling verse, at least to me, because I thought if the Lord was going to bless me, he would get me out of prison, and that would feel like a blessing. But he remains in prison, but the Lord gives him favor. The commander of the prison... and. Uh, entrusted into Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in prison so that everything that was done there he was responsible for it so he's doing very well in prison 
making the best out of a bad situation. Joseph had a lot of bad breaks, but still remains faithful. Doesn't seem very bitter, or at least the text doesn't show that across. Doesn't show that he harbored bitter in his heart. But in the midst of all this persecution, Adonai still blesses him. Um, we get, move over to chapter 40, getting closer to this week's Parsha. And he, there's an interesting little um, interaction he has here with the cupbearer and the chief baker, who are also thrown in prison with him, where he interprets their dreams through the spirit, of course. He interprets their dreams, and he tells uh, the cupbearer to put in a good word for him when he sees Pharaoh. Chapter 40, verse 14, he says, But if you remember me, that I was with you, when it goes well with you, please show me kindness and mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was forcibly kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing at all that they should put me in this pit. So when you jump down to the last verse in the chapter 40, it says, Yet the chief of the cupbearers did not remember Joseph. Indeed, he forgot him. And this week's parsha opens up with a verse that says, Now at the end of two whole years, Pharaoh was dreaming. So he asked this cupbearer, please remember me. I gave you this um, incredible revelation of what your dream means through the spirit, of course. And years go by. I mean, that alone still has to be crushing to the spirit. Yet Pharaoh has a dream, right? Seven fat cows, seven scrawny, very hungry, weak cows. Um, another dream where there was seven years of corn on a stalk that were very, you know, plump, and then there was seven ears of corn that were very withered up and, and uh, weak, of course. And so he has this dream, it's bothering him. He's trying to figure out who can uh, interpret this dream for me and all his magicians, they can't do anything. Potiphar, or the cupbearer, finally remembers Joseph and uh, goes before him and tells Pharaoh that there was this Hebrew kid when I was locked up that um, interpreted this dream for me. It came true. You have to get him out here, and he can interpret your dream. Very good. So Pharaoh pulls him out of there. He interprets Pharaoh's dream, of course, that the seven fat cows and the seven uh, healthy corn uh, stalks were seven years of abundance, and then that the lean years would be uh, seven years of famine, and tells Pharaoh that he needs to really get in there, save, save, save for seven years, and that will save his kingdom. Pharaoh's very impressed, puts Joseph in charge of everything. Chapter 41, verse 37, says this. Um, I'm going to start in verse 46. Now Joseph was 30 years old, so he was 17 back a few chapters ago, and... Here we are about 13 years later, and he spent much of that in prison, half his life in prison almost. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he began serving as representative of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and passed through the whole land of Egypt. 
during the seven years of abundance, the land uh, produced in heaps. So he gathered all the food in the land over the seven years and put the food in cities. The food from the city fields surrounding the cities, he put in each city. So Joseph stored up grain like the sand of the sea, vast amounts, until he stopped keeping record because it was beyond counting, doing very good. The advice he gives to Pharaoh not only spares Egypt during the famine, but the kingdom thrives. The famine reaches all over, including Canaan. Now, what happens is, is the brothers, minus Benjamin, as was read uh, this morning during the Torah readings, um, they go to Egypt because the only one that has grain in the whole world is Joseph. And so they're heading down there to get them. He meets them. They don't recognize their brother. Joseph decides he's going to test them. Right first, he calls them spies. Um, yes, he calls them spies. And then he's going to, he's getting them all riled up. Then he gives them a test. 42 verse 17 says, So he put them together in custody for three days. Then Joseph said to them on the third day, the third day, of course, do this and you will live. Um, I, I fear God. If you're honest, let one of your brothers remain as a prisoner in the guardhouse where you've been while you go up. Bring grain for the hunger in your homes and your youngest brother bring to me so that your words can be verified. So he sets up this uh, scenario where he's going to keep one brother, send the others back. He wants to see them bring back Benjamin. Obviously, their father Israel is distraught. He thinks Joseph is long dead, of course, and he might never see Benjamin again, the only children he had from his beloved Rachel. Now, the brothers return with Benjamin to prove their innocence, and again, Joseph tests them. He plays nice with them at first, loads them up with grain, but he sabotages Benjamin's load to make it look like he stole the cup from Joseph. And then the brothers leave, they get chased down, and the punishment is that Benjamin must stay as a slave in Egypt. This is right near the end of this week's Torah portion. In chapter 44, they're caught with a cup after they're chased down, and the last couple verses in this week's Torah portion is Judah trying to explain to himself or their selves collectively to Joseph, their brother, unknowns to them. Judah says, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we as well as the one in whose hand the cup was found. But he said, Joseph this is, far be it from me to do this, the one in whose hand the cup was found, he will be my slave, but you go up to your father in peace. Nightmare, nightmare scenario for Judah. Just the one thing that could not happen, happened. Joseph wants to keep Benjamin, and the rest can go back with their father. Next week's Torah portion starts out like this. Then Judah approached him and said, I beg your pardon, my lord. Please let your servant say a word in my Lord's ears, and don't be angry with your servant, since you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Do you have a father or brother? 
So he said unto my Lord, we have a father who is old, a child born to him of his old age is young. Now his brother is dead, so he is the only one of his mother's children left, and his father loves him. Then you said, your servants, bring him down to me so that I can look at him. But we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave his father, he would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you won't see my face again. Now when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him my Lord's words. Then our father said, go back, buy us a little grain for food. So we said, we won't go down unless we have our youngest brother with us. Then we'll go down. For we won't see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. This is Benjamin, of course. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you yourselves know that my wife bore me two sons. One went out from me, so I said he must have been torn to shreds, and I haven't seen him since. And if you also take this one away from before me, and an accident happens to him, then you'll bring my gray hair down to the evil of Sheol. Now if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy isn't with us, since his life is bound to his life, when he sees the boy is no longer here, he'll die. Then your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in grief. For your servant became pledge for the boy with my father, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before my father all my days. So now, please let your servant remain as my Lord's slave in the boy's place and let the boy go up with his brothers. For how can I go up to my father and the boy is not with me? Else I must see the evil that would come upon my father. Finally, a moment of just redemption in the brother's lives or certainly within at least Judah that he realizes he just can't go back without Benjamin. There's no way that can happen. Just keep me and send them all back instead. And with that, Joseph could no longer restrain himself in front of all those who were standing. So he cried out, get everyone away from me. No one stood with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. But he gave his voice to weeping so that the Egyptians heard and Pharaoh's household heard. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his brothers were unable to answer because they were terrified at his presence. He finally reveals himself to them. While Joseph, of course, had a chance to take revenge for everything that's happened to him, for being thrown in a pit, for spending half his life in prison, there was no bitterness in his heart, only love and reconciliation. What the brothers meant for evil, the Lord worked for good. And so there's many parallels all over the story. Can't do them justice in one uh, just one teaching up here. For example, Joseph, in a way, Joseph represents Yeshua and the brothers represent the Jewish people. The brothers rejected Joseph. That led to the salvation of Egypt and the world through grain and provision. Of course, the, the Jewish people rejecting the Jewish leadership, more particularly, Rejecting Yeshua led to the salvation of the world through his life, death, and resurrection. It's a parallel theme. One is a finite earthly event. The other is an eternal and messianic era event. So you see the themes happen 
that are very parallel. It's just one's an earthly event, one's a heavenly event. Another parallel. You could think that, you could sort of see that Egypt could represent Christianity and the brothers represent Judaism. Let's think about this. Egypt, they really didn't know the true identity of Joseph. Now the cupbearer knew he was a Hebrew. A few of them knew he was a Hebrew, but they didn't really know exactly what that meant. Didn't have a lot of context behind what the Hebrews were, besides they were just some dirty shepherds from abroad. But what he meant to them was grain and provision and uh, saving the nation in the midst of uh, when there was no food and the drought. Similarly, Christianity certainly knows Yeshua is our Savior, the life, death, and resurrection of him is the salvation of the world, and most of them know that he's Jewish. They just don't have a lot of context or understanding what that really means. They don't understand uh, the sect of Judaism that they were part of and how being faithful Jews impacted his earthly life or the life of the apostles. Now, Christianity, for as many good things that it has done, has unfortunately provided a version of Yeshua that's sort of Romanized or Egyptianized that the Jewish people do not recognize. His identity is hidden, so to speak hidden from Judaism, and this theme of hidden identity is something that runs all over the book of Genesis. Abraham's hiding the identity of his wife. Um, Esau, when you look at uh, Jacob and Esau, hidden identity there, right? Dressing up like his brother Esau. Um, Rachel and Leah, right? Leah's uh, hiding her identity on the wedding night. I mean, this hidden identity thing's all over the place. The theme of hidden identity is something that you could look at as man making mistakes and God working that out for good. After the dust settles, Joseph, of course, weps. He forgives his brother, providing reconciliation to a broken family. You can look at Judaism and Christianity like a family. Sometimes there is profound disagreement. And we are in a season where certain holidays stir up a little extra disagreement and sometimes a little bitterness in the heart, right? This Christmas season certainly brings a lot of that out. Sometimes when one learns about the Yeshua faith of the first century, how they lived, they discover the holiness of Shabbat, they discover the meaningful depths of all the Moedim, they feel a little bit cheated by the church. They feel like they've been cheated they feel a little bitterness towards them. Bitterness for depriving them of things like the wisdom of Torah and the Shabbat and the festivals. This is a natural feeling. I get it. I felt that way for a season of my life many years ago. But we need to consider the grace and mercy that Joseph showed to his brothers. It's easy to point fingers and call out what others are doing is wrong or how they may have deprived us for something. You can always do that in life. But let me share with you a helpful proverb. One of my favorite proverbs, um, I don't have a page number for you. It is Proverbs chapter 19 is where I'm heading. I'll find it myself. I don't have a page number for myself. So I'll be looking forward to it with you. 
725. If you have one of these versions, it's 829, David. Proverbs chapter 19. They're all good, but this one I particularly like. It's uh, verse seven, verse 11. Look back here. Yes, verse 11. Prudence makes one slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook an offense. Right? Just that one verse. Prudence makes one slow to anger. It's a good thing. And his glory is to overlook an offense. Let's think about overlooking an offense. Because this goes against our inclinations. Overlooking an offense, really? People want justice. People want accountability for when somebody does something wrong. To overlook an offense goes against how our inclinations just drive us. But overlooking an offense is what Joseph did with his brothers. It's what all the great men in the Bible did. Overlooking an offense is what Stephen did in Acts chapter 7 when he was being stoned to death. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You know, while you'd think he would be shouting vengeance upon them, he did not do that. Overlooking offense is what Yeshua did when he said to his father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing. Prudence makes one slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook an offense. This is the posture we must have with our Christian brothers and sisters this season to help have a positive effect on them, to help reconcile them to the true identity of Yeshua and the Yeshua faith of the first century. We should be a source of reconciliation, a source of knowledge. We should be representatives of that Yeshua that correct, we need to rehabilitate what that image looks like as a Messiah that was faithful to the Judaism of his day, faithful to uh, Jewish life, among, uh, alongside of all the apostles as well. We're not going to rehabilitate that overnight, but if this is uh, part, we're part of this movement that is uh, trying to do this, then that is the efforts that collectively we are all a part of. We should be the source of reconciliation, helping the kingdom vision to get out there, a kingdom where Yeshua ultimately reigns in Jerusalem and the Torah goes forth from Zion. Let us be patient. Let us be those that can overlook offense. Let us seek reconciliation among our extended spiritual family. If we do this, Adonai will bless us, give us peace. The Spirit will renew us and inspire us to seek him even more. Shabbat Shalom.